Welcome back to another episode of Pop Dogs. My name is Bob Doster. I am joined right now by my producer, Tristan Tucker. We're going to talk a little bit about uh, what we've seen out of the Huskies for the first two games before we get into an interview with Josh Bowen, which is a lot of fun. Make sure you stick around. You've got to hear his Jim Callis story that he tells uh, at the very end. But until we get there, Tristan, what's going on, man? How you doing? How's everything? Doing pretty good. Pretty good. Uh, you know, my NC State men's team is kind of struggling to start the year. So, you know, yeah, going as well as it can be, I guess. Yeah, well, you got a new uh, a new second favorite team that you can follow since I'm making you watch all of the UConn games. Uh, this Absolutely. Come on and talk through it with me a little bit. So I guess overall, what are your kind of impressions from the uh, the first two games? Yeah, I mean, they've looked really good. I mean, obviously, they played lesser opponents. So, I mean, that's bound to happen. Um, but I mean, obviously, really encouraging things uh, from the start. I uh, kind of wanted to start with um, Adama Sinogo. It's been it's been a bucket. He's been a bucket for real. Uh, he's been a lot of fun to watch. I think 20 points in both games. So, yeah, definitely exciting to see that. Yeah, he's been a monster. And, and, you know, we kind of we've talked about this on the show, but everybody around that program has been raving about how good he's been, about his improvement level, about what he's going to end up being this season. Uh, and I think it's kind of come to fruition through the first two games. I, I've been really impressed. I think it looks like he's a little slimmer and it looks like he's a little lighter on his feet and he's moving a little better. There were some uh, instances where he was switching out on the point guards um, in, in the first couple of games, which is not necessarily something that he was great at doing last year. And I think that he's got a, gotten better there. He looks like he's more comfortable moving his feet, he, but he's just got such great touch around the basket. Um, I've been, I've been very pleased with that so far. It'll be interesting to see what happens as he kind of goes up against bigger opponents. You know, I, he's not, he's not one of these seven foot two monsters that are out there, but I do think he can, He's a little bit more skilled than I, I think I realized he was um, stepping away from the basket. So we'll see what happens there. The other guy I've been impressed with is uh, is RJ Cole. And, you know, it, we should have expected this out of him. We got the cold-blooded merch on right there. But, uh, I mean, he's, he's, he's just so good and so underrated. Now, he also yeah. is probably, what, like 5'10 uh, on a good day. So yeah. it, it's going to be interesting to see what happens when he goes up against some, some kind of bigger opponent. Specifically, Seton Hall comes to mind. But I got to say, after the first two games, I, I saw a stat. I don't know if this is true. I think I saw it on Twitter, so I'm just going to go with it. But this is the first time in two decades that UConn has won their first two games of the season by more than 35 points. And that kind of, you know, the hype might be justified for this group. Yeah, I think so, definitely. And, I mean, going back to Cole in particular, I really liked uh, the fact that in the first game, you know, he shot lights out. I think he was like three for three from uh, deep. Uh, was really great at shooting the ball. Second game kind of tapered off a little bit from the shooting, wasn't as hot, um, but then he found a way to move the ball. I think he finished with six assists that game. He's just a great floor general, a uh, great leader to have. Yeah, the, you mentioned the shooting. There's no way that it's going to uh, to continue here, but they're shooting 42% from three at this point. Um, and yeah. that is with the guy that we all thought who was going to be their best shooter, Tyler Polly, is one for seven on the season. Now, wow. you know, the, the regression monster is going to eventually end up catching up to them, but to me, that that is kind of that's the make or break stat. I guess the swing stat, or the, whatever, however you want to phrase it. If they're able to make enough threes that forces defenses to come out and allow Adama to go one on one, I mean that's the sweet spot. We we see it. Uh, I make this comparison a lot, but we see it a lot with Purdue, right? Where when they have great shooting and one big monster at the five, that you can kind of force teams to have to make a decision: Are you going to go double team? Or are you going to risk it and let him go one-on-one in the post? A lot of times we see him go one-on-one in the post, and we want that for Adama, right? I still think that's probably the best way for uh, for UConn to get their points. So, I mean, the shooting 
it's been impressive so far. We'll see if it lasts once they get kind of against tougher competition. And I guess, I mean, that's kind of the theme of the whole first two games, right? The first week of the season for UConn is, yeah, you look great, but it's Coppin State in Central Connecticut. You know, we're, we're not going to get a real feel for what this team is until next Wednesday when they get to the Bahamas and they have to deal with uh, Auburn and they have to deal with Bruce Pearl. And, and you know, we'll, we'll talk more about that game as we get closer uh, to that actual matchup and more about that event as we get closer to it. But um, I mean, I don't know how you can be anything other than, than positive after the way this started. I'm sure Dan Hurley will find a way uh, to let his guys yeah. know that he, it's not, you know, it's not perfect yet, but I don't know how you can be anything other than, than optimistic after what we've seen. Yeah. I mean, you're seeing great things from like just top bottom of the roster. Um, one guy that also stood out to me um, that I'm, I'm liking a little bit, uh, somebody I liked entering the season, especially um, a cook, a cook. Yes. Um, I really like um, how he's playing. Um, I mean, I, he's kind of showing uh, some aspects of his game that I didn't really, I mean, I obviously didn't follow the team as closely as uh, I am now, but uh, he's something like three for four from deep, which I just didn't think he had in his arsenal. Um, cool to see. Um, yeah, I mean, just super physical athletic player. Super excited to see like what he can do, especially if that's a guy that's coming off the bench too for this team. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, it just, when he's, if he's making shots and Isaiah Whaley's making shots and, and you can kind of play them together at times, all of a sudden this team gets really long and really athletic when you consider how long an athletic Andre Jackson is and the way that you can play Tyrese Martin at the two. Um, and we still haven't seen Jordan Hawkins yet. You know, and Samson Johnson, he's a guy, uh, Hurley keeps referring to him as wall potential uh, throughout um, the preseason, which, you know, obviously is a reference to being uh, on like the, the Hall of Fame for UConn. And we haven't really yeah. seen much out of Samson yet. And, and, you know, of course, Jordan Hawkins hasn't played. But uh, those are two guys that I do think allow you to kind of see a progression during the season itself, right? Because they're, they're only going to get better as, as they kind of mature and, and uh, get used to playing at this level a little bit. I will say one thing, though. Um, I do think that my opinion of where UConn stands in kind of like the Big East power ranking, so to speak, has – gotten a little bit lower and it's nothing because of what we've seen out of UConn and it has everything to do with one you know I was a little bit down on Villanova heading into the season and I thought that they looked fantastic at UCLA they probably should have won that game I yeah. think that tip-off is not at 11 30 p.m eastern time on the fourth day of the season in LA on the other coast uh, I think that Villanova probably beats UCLA Colin Gillespie was really good. I thought Justin Moore looks like he's kind of taking a step forward. Eric Dixon's going to be an impact player. They're, just, they're Villanova, man. They're not going to beat themselves. So um, I was really impressed with them. I also think that Seton Hall, like, they really have top 15 potential. Uh, I also think that given kind of the way that they play, they are just a horrific matchup for UConn. You know, RJ Cole yeah. mentioned he's 5'10", 5, 5'11". 5, There's going to be times when – Seton Hall is rolling out lineups one through four that they're six, seven with seven foot plus wingspans and then seven foot two Ike Obiagu in the paint. Yeah. I think it's very difficult when you have a smaller initiator like RJ Cole and a five man that isn't a stretch five. Like that is, you really need size, you really need length and you really need someone that can pull the big guy away from the basket. Otherwise, all Seton Hall is going to do is what the throwback UConn teams did. They're going to overplay yeah. you. They're going to pressure you. They're going to force you to drive to the paint. And they're going to have that 7-2 monster waiting at the rim. So um, I just – I really do think that Seton Hall has the, the the potential to be a top 15 Final Four caliber team this season. We'll see if it all plays out. It never does with Seton Hall, but uh, they have a lot yeah. of potential. And, and I could see a situation where it's like 
Uh, UConn ends up finishing a game behind Seton Hall in the Big East standings because Seton Hall beats them twice. But mm-hmm. I also think that UConn is the kind of team that matches up better, just generally speaking, um, in terms of uh, some of the other teams. So I think it, it might be a situation where UConn's a better team, but they can't actually beat Seton Hall. Am I making sense when I say that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I like that take a lot. Uh, Seton Hall's a team I liked entering the season. Uh, I kind of th- think they didn't get enough credit uh, entering the year. So I, I definitely like that take. Um, but yeah, I mean, like you said, um, when, when they take on Auburn next week, that's going to be the true litmus test of where this team really is and what they can be. Um, obviously, you know, you're going to see a lot that you like uh, when you're playing some of these teams. you got this, you know, 40-point margin of victory for both the first two games. So you're obviously going to like a lot of what you see. But yeah, the real litmus test starts next week for sure. Yeah, the, the one other thing I do want to note is, I mean, St. John's has been about what we expected in Xavier. Uh, they've won twice. Uh, I'm not going to fully buy in on them until we see what happens with Zach Fremantle. But I do think the top five of the Big East is good. Butler's 3-0, which is always a positive. But, man, Creighton's a mess. They, they, they were down big to Arkansas Pine Bluff, and I don't even remember who they played. I think it was Kennesaw State. So they had come from behind wins at home to beat those two teams. They're young, but I, that's, that's a little much for me. Um, Georgetown yeah. lost at home to Dartmouth in their opener. DePaul is DePaul. We don't even really need to pay attention to them. So uh, if this, this league is going to get more than five bids, we need Marquette to do things like beat Illinois at home on, on Monday night. Uh, you'll, you'll be listening to this after that game happens, so it's going to sound like we're smart um, or dumb. We're going to need Providence to do things like go into Wisconsin and at least put in a performance. Uh, that happens again on a Monday night. So seeing how this team kind of plays out in the Gavit games is going to be really uh, interesting, uh, so to speak. But um, I, I'm, I'm concerned about what the bottom of that conference is going to end up being and how that will impact kind of the league's overall computer numbers. You know, part of the reason why the big 10, and the big 12 always have great computer numbers is there's never a bad team in the league. So you're always just kind of the rising tide lifts all ships, so to speak. So. Yeah. We'll yeah, I agree. We'll see. All right. Well, listen, uh, we'll have a lot more to talk about with current games once there's yeah. actually games that are really worth talking about. It's not just us trying to force something to give you guys the content that you want to hear. Uh, so let's get into that interview with Josh Boone. Thanks for joining me, Tristan. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. And now let me welcome on to Top Dogs, the one and only Josh Boone. Josh, what's going on, man? Thank you for being here. There you go. Thank you for having me. So uh, before we kind of get into your your UConn pass, let's talk a little bit about uh, what you've been doing and what you've been up to lately. After playing in the NBA for four years, you spent, uh, I believe it's now 12 consecutive seasons playing basketball, uh, probably in every single country overseas from best I can tell, uh, China, Bahrain, Estonia, Russia, Australia, Singapore, the UAE and Mexico. I think I got them all there. So let me ask you this, which, uh, which of those countries was your favorite to play? In? Um, you did miss a couple, but it really, it really doesn't matter because it's, it's hard for me to keep track, honestly, with the amount of places I've been. Um, my favorite outside of the U.S. would definitely be Australia. I was in Australia for about three and a half seasons and loved it there. Loved living there. Um, I was in Melbourne for the first two and a half years. And that is one of, if not the best city that I've ever been to. And, I, and I've been to 45 countries, I think, at this point. And Melbourne is, is right up there with the best cities that I've ever seen. It's, you know, it's, it's usually ranked as one of the most livable cities in the world. And after being there for as long as I was there, I can see why. Yeah, I could tell that you were going to say Australia because the first time that you texted me back, you dropped a mate in there. So I just figured you're probably <laughs> at this point a, 
uh, a naturalized Australian. Um, while you were there, I actually wanted to ask you about this. Uh, you played with the Illawarra Hawks and, and Lamella Ball for, I believe it was 13 games, his uh, his full NBL career. Um, he's become something of a sensation in the league at this point. Are, are you surprised that he's developed hmm. into this good of a player this quickly? Did you see this coming? No, I'm not surprised at all. I had, I had um, multiple conversations with NBA teams when he was looking to get drafted and I told everyone the same thing. I said, that kid can be as good as he wants to be. You know, his, his ceiling is perennial all-star. That's his ceiling. And it's just a, it was just going to be a question of whether he got into the right situation with the right people around him that were willing to, you know, put forth the time and effort to help him develop. Cause ultimately at the end of the day, he's still really young. You know, he was, I think he turned 17 no, he turned uh, 18, I think, when he was with us. Yep. If I'm not mistaken. So, you know, he is he is super young in terms of his development and in terms of his his basketball growth. He still has a long way to go, but he's already showing flashes. He is, you know, he is probably the one person I've played with that has the highest ceiling, you know, the the most potential out of anybody. And I've played with some of the best players to ever play this game. So He's he's got a chance. He's got a chance to be something very very special. I've always said that he's it's his basketball IQ that sets him apart. Like I, I watched every single game that he played um, in the NBA, and some of the passes that he makes, some of the reads that he makes, the the understanding that he have it, it's it's beyond. Uh, I, I call him a basketball genius. He's a basketball savant. I don't think he gets the credit, you know, because of who his dad is and kind of what his past is and the whole ball in the family thing. It, it feels like people don't understand like this dude, he's a basketball genius, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. He's, he's a, a very, very intelligent basketball player um, who is, who is constantly learning as well. Who's not afraid to ask questions and try and make himself better. Um, in terms of just reads, like it's just something that seems to come very naturally to him. You know, passing is, is clearly the best thing he does. You know, yes, he can score. Yes, he can handle the bar. But at the end of the day, he is a great passer. Um, there were times when he was with us that I found he would try to force things a little bit because he sees everything. But unfortunately, he didn't realize that just because you can see it doesn't mean that the pass can actually get there. So occasionally he would, you know, try to force things and, and turn the ball over. But at the end of the game, he still has, you know, eight assists and three turnovers. So you can't really ask for much more out of your point guard. Yeah, so I'm assuming you liked him pretty well as a, as a person out there. What was he like as a teammate? He's a, he's a great kid, man. He really is. He, like you said before, he gets a little bit of a bad rap because of who he is, because of his family, because of, you know, what you see on TV. But at the end of the day, the kid is, he's just an 18 year old kid. That's, that's what he is. You know, he's, he's extremely humble, quite honestly, given what he has, you know, what he's come up in, you know, the fact that he is known by millions and millions of people, you know, can't, can't go out as a kid without people coming over to him and trying to swallow him for autographs and pictures. We, we saw that over in Australia. So, you know, I kind of put myself in his position and I was like, what would it be like if I was there at, my, at that age? You know, I don't know how I would handle it. And I think he's done a brilliant job handling it so far. Yeah, so that, that, that's a good segue into kind of what your recruitment was like coming out of high school. Because if I remember correctly, you weren't, you didn't really get identified as that kind of like surefire uh, top 50, four, whatever, like high major recruit until a little bit later in your development, right? You, it was kind of yep. 
uh, I, w- I want to say maybe your junior year. Am I making that up? That, that people started realizing, hey, you know what? This kid, yeah. uh, the kid from Sykesville might be pretty good. Yeah, it was, it was junior year. Um, and actually, so the way UConn found out about me, um, they hadn't seen me. And there was a coach, I think it was in between my junior and senior year, I went to Eastern Invitational Basketball Camp. And there was a coach there from a smaller school, I think, in Connecticut. Uh, not to cut you off real quick, but to give people a, a little bit of an idea of what Eastern Invitational was, I was at that same camp that you were at. I think it was mm-hmm. week two at, uh, at the College of New Jersey, right? Uh, yeah, it, it, it bounced around. It was there. It was at Robert Morris. It was a couple of different places. Yeah, so I was, I was at the Eastern Invitational as well, and I played uh, Division three basketball. So it was uh, that, that we're not talking about the five-star camp when we're talking about Eastern Invitational. No. No, that definitely not. This is this is not a camp that you usually see big time guys going to. They go to Adidas or they go to Nike or they, you know, even even five stars, kind of similar vein of, of Eastern. At least it was when I went. So, you know, I was at that camp and there was a coach from a smaller school that saw me and he actually called one of the assistant coaches at UConn by the name of Clyde Vaughn, the guy who ended up recruiting me. And he told Clyde, he's like, he's like, look, there's this kid at Eastern right now. He was like, um, this kid is very good and I am not going to be able to get him, but you should come and see him before it's too late. And of course, you know, Clyde's like, ah, you know, the guy's three and a half stars or whatever. He's like, why am I going to waste my time? And, and the other coach was like, look, you have, you have to come and see him. So Clyde came and saw me at um, an AAU tournament in West Virginia. And, at, and as soon as he saw me, he called Coach Calhoun and told Coach Calhoun the exact same thing that the other coach told him. It was like basically the same conversation happening all over again where Calhoun was like, oh, he's three and a half stars. Why am I going to waste my time with him? And Clyde's like, look, you need to come and see this kid. And I think Coach finally came to see me at um, Nationals down in Florida. I believe that's where Coach actually saw me the first time for himself. So that was, you know, in this business, people talk and Thankfully for me, these coaches talked to each other and happened to, you know, this guy happened to tell Clyde Vaughn that um, I was somebody that he should look at. So I was told to ask you about how Lou Perkins on your visit to UConn was the guy that sold you on going to the school. And like a week later, he ended up leaving for Kansas. Is that, is that true? <laughs> I, don't, I don't know that Lou was the one that sold me. I think Mecca Okafer was the one that sold me. Um, but I, I remember Lou was there, you know, high, high flying Lou. Um, you know, he was, he was cool when I met him. He was definitely cool. Um, it was unfortunate that he, he bounced right away to, uh, to Kansas and, and took our strength conditioning coach with him. But I understand, you know, m- money is money. And this, and that's what this business is about at the end of the day. You know, when people, people tend to forget a lot of times that, that sports are still a business. And, you know, all of us want to make the most money as we can. And he found himself a better deal. So, you know, <laughs> good, good for him. I could never be mad at him for taking it. Um, honestly, it's kind of funny because so he ended up at Kansas um, when I was getting recruited. At the end of the day, it was between UConn and Kansas for me. And I was very, very close to going to Kansas, like very close. Roy Williams came to see me at my prep school. And after um after he watched me practice we went to a meeting and he had the scholarship papers with him and he put them down right in the middle of the table and said look I'm not going to tell you that you need to sign these these are the scholarship papers they're here if you want them and he proceeded to sell me on the University of Kansas and 
an hour later. So I'll be damned if I didn't really want to sign those papers. Um, but I didn't because I knew I had a visit coming to UConn. I think it was the next weekend. So I wanted to make sure that, you know, I saw both of them and I could really make the best decision possible. But if I would have ended up at Kansas, Roy left Kansas that year as well. And he went to Carolina. So it's just very interesting, um, you know, to kind of tie a seg- tie, like tie it all together. When I was growing up, UConn and North Carolina, those were my two favorite schools. Mm-hmm. Those were the schools that I wanted to go to when I was younger. Those are the schools that I always watched playing uh, on TV, et cetera, et cetera. So if I would have ended up going to Kansas, Roy left and went to Carolina that year. I would have left and went to Carolina with him. And Carolina won the national championship my sophomore year. So no matter how I did it, I would have, A, ended up at one of my two favorite schools, and B, won a national championship. It just I, would I, have I been think I speak for everybody year. in the state of Connecticut when I say that we're very glad you made the decision. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm glad I made the decision, too. You know, I, I'll, ultimately, I feel that I made the right decision in coming to UConn. You know, I, I really made the decision, um, going back to what I said earlier, it was Emeka Okafer mm-hmm. that made me decide to come to Connecticut. And it wasn't the opportunity to play alongside him that intrigued me. It was the opportunity to play backing him up that more brought me there. You know, I didn't go there expecting to start. I went there expecting just to try and learn from a Mecca for a year because I knew I had one more year with him. And at the time he was, he was the best player in college basketball and just so happened to play my position as well. So it was in, you know, it was invaluable for me to go there and just have a year to kind of see what he does, you know, pick up little things here and there. You know, that, that was that was really what turned the tide and, and made me decide to go to UConn instead. And, but also there was a benefit because you got to practice against him every single day. And if people go back and look at that front line from that year, first you were there, Hilton Armstrong, number 12 pick in the draft. Charlie Villanueva was a lottery. I don't remember what he was, but he was a lottery pick when he left. Mecca Okafor mm-hmm. was the national player of the year. You were there as well, and you were a top, uh, I think you were 23rd in 2006. So that, I, front lines don't get much better than that or much bigger than that. So what what were those practices like every single day? Well, you, you also didn't add that we also had the ACC Rookie of the Year right. as a redshirt <laughs> because he couldn't play because he, tra- he transferred that year. So we're practicing against him every day too, you know? So those practices were, were very, very high level. Um, I remember there was actually one day where our walk-on team, our our walk-on team consisted of, um, I think it was, it was two or three guys that were like genuine walk-ons, but they were, they were solid players, you know, Um, Jason Beish, um, Ivanovich, there was, there were, there were some good players on that team as walk-ons and add to that, um, Ryan Thompson, who was my team, my, uh, one of my roommates and was a, um, uh, recruit from Australia, from Gold Coast and at Nelson. And there was one practice where we actually had to stop practice because they came down, they turned us over, they threw like an outlet pass, one more pass. And then they threw a lob from like half court and somebody went up and dunked it. I don't know if it was, it was Bice or if it was Ed. But we literally had to stop practice at that point because, like, you, you don't see scout teams doing that. <laughs> you know, you don't, you don't see walk-on teams doing that. Our, our scout team probably could have beaten two-thirds of the teams in the country. That was how good they were. All right. So, um, you know, I have to ask about the, uh, the 2004 title run. 
Uh, and specifically, it was the comeback against Duke that really stands out to me. I think it stands out for everyone uh, that's a UConn fan. Second half, you guys were down pretty much the entire half. I think you got down by as much as 11. Uh, so what, what's going through your head as all of that is happening? I think you were in foul trouble. Emeka was in foul trouble. Uh, it felt like the entire front line was in foul trouble. Like what's, how, how is that second half playing out in, the, in those huddles, in that locker room, kind of in the timeouts? Well, honestly, we were we were kind of happy to be in that position, considering what happened in the first half, where Ameka gets his second foul, I think, five or so minutes into the game. And Coach Calhoun always had a rule. If you get two fouls in the first half, you don't play for the rest of the first half. And clearly, based on the fact that it was the NCAA player of the year and the final four, he doesn't change that rule. So he benched him for the next 15 minutes. So it was it was Charlie Hilton and I for the most part, you know, out there trying trying to contain one of the best front lines in all of college basketball. Um, so we were, you know, we weren't overly disappointed in the spot that we were in. And we've been down before, you know, we, we've been down before and, and came back in games. So, you know, we had the utmost confidence. Plus we had a guy named Rashad Anderson that, you know, doesn't, doesn't know the meaning of not being confident. Uh, and, and he came down and hit a couple of really big shots late. Um, but, but yeah, you know, down, down seven, two and a half minutes left against a Duke team that doesn't lose leads. That's a, that's a tough place to be. And I think that just shows how good of a team we really were, that we were able to come back in that situation. Yeah. It was the the mental strength to, to kind of come back from a situation like that. Last play, the, uh, the, the, maybe not the last play, but there's 44 seconds left. You're down 75 to 74. Take me through what you remember from that possession, because I don't know how many people actually remembered how, how vital you were in getting that, uh, that go ahead. We'll just call it. the game. Um, I, I don't remember who actually shot it first. I don't remember who took the first shot. It may have been Ben. It may have been Rashad. I'm not totally sure. Was, I just remember. Mecca. The, it was Mecca. Oh, Omeka oh, took the first one. Okay. All right. So Mech took, took the first shot and then there was kind of, there was a lot of us going for the rebound. I ended up getting a hand on it and tipped it back. And Mech was able to grab it from there, turn around and put it back in. So we went up one and, you know, we, we never let the lead go at that point. Um, you know, there was another play earlier on as well, where there was a loose ball in front of their bench and there was a bunch of people going for it. I ended up diving on it and we got a timeout. And, and save the possession. And that was, a, that was a pretty big play as well. Um, you know, cause people always ask me about the tip, but not a lot of people actually remember that play either that really saved the possession because that got us the ball back. I think in, you were, you were down five. three at that point. There was like a minute yeah. 45 left. Yeah. 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 That was, you know, that was a big one too. So do you, yeah. you take credit as the, the hero, right? Do you, do you make sure to let him know that you don't hit that game winning shot? You, you, don't, you don't get that <laughs> glory if I'm not there to make the tip. Absolutely not. <laughs> Absolutely not. No, you know, I just, I just happened to get my hand on, on a ball that, you know, was, was up in the air and, and it just happened to come close enough to me that I was able to tip it and, and he did the rest. Before we move on, let me tell you guys a little bit about our partners over at Bet River Sportsbook. If you haven't signed up for Bet Rivers yet, now is the time because they are offering a $250 match bonus for your first deposit. But what sets them apart is that they require just one playthrough to turn your bonus into cash money. With their rush pay instant approval, withdrawing your winnings is safer, it's more secure, and it's more reliable. Now that basketball season is tipping off, 
Get in on the action at betrivers.com today or by downloading the BetRivers iOS app. You must be 21 years or older. If you have a gambling problem, call 1-800-GAMBLER. And while I got you here, let's talk about the Field of 68 Media Network, where college basketball matters most all year round. This is a digital media and podcast network that we've been building over the course of the last year. We have shows hosted by some of your favorite players covering the program that they love the most. AJ Guyton hosts the House of Hoosier. Eric Devendorf covers Syracuse on the scorer's table. Dan Dickow hosts the Gonzaga Bulldog broadcast. We have Florida's Patrick Young and Duke's Andre Dawkins and North Carolina's Shimon Williams and Michigan's Stu Douglas and Illinois' Deion Thomas. The list goes on and on and on. We have more than 30 shows right now. So hit the links below and check them all out. And while you're at it, make sure that you go check out the Field of 12 Media Network, your home for college football. You know, right, so let's, let's talk about that 2016, because I always tell people that's one of the five uh, best college basketball teams that didn't win the title. You had four first round picks on that roster. You had five guys get drafted. That doesn't include Rashad Anderson. That doesn't include Ed Nelson. Uh, yeah. But it just felt like in March, it just kind of you, you guys hit your lull at the wrong. Every team has a lull during a season, right? It just felt like you hit your lull at the wrong time. Am I right there? Yeah. You know, when we when we won the championship my freshman year, um, we were playing our best basketball going into the Big East tournament. Mm-hmm. And we've seen over the years with UConn teams, when they win the Big East tournament, they have a very good chance to win the NCAA championship. Uh, whereas with us, it was it was kind of the opposite. We played really, really well earlier on in the year. And then as the year went on, we just kind of tailed off a little bit. And and we really struggled throughout that entire tournament. You know, it was it was it was tough sledding for us in, in pretty much every game. And you know, as as hard as we played, we were still lucky to get out of that Sweet 16 game against against Washington. You know, Brandon Roy and them, they they took us to the absolute limit. And if it wasn't for Rashad hitting a, a pretty incredible shot with about three or four seconds left, we we don't win that game either. Um, and then we ended up going into a game where we were the number one overall seed in the entire tournament and had to play against a team that was 10 minutes away from their home campus. So it was basically like playing a road game against a team that had absolutely nothing to lose. You know, that the George Mason team that we played had nothing to lose. They weren't even supposed to be in the second round, let alone playing against the top seed in the elite eight. So that team with that mindset is extremely dangerous, you know, and, and uh, with, with basketball and sports in general, if you let a team like that come out in the beginning and realize that they have a chance to win, it makes it really hard on you. And that was what we did. We just, we just didn't come out the way that we needed to and let them hang around. And, and in the end, they made one more play than we did. You know, I think a lot of it, had to do, and this is this is not to take away anything from them because they they played a phenomenal game. You know, they played a, a, a great week or two or a couple of weeks of basketball to even get to that position, and then they beat us. So you know, props to them. Um, for us, I think our mindset was two things. You know, number one, we were looking at Florida in the Final Four, and that was a Florida team with Corey Brewer with Al Horford. You know, they were they were absolutely loaded. They were just like us. They had numerous guys that were going to be going to the NBA that next year. So, you know, I think we may have slightly overlooked George Mason in that in because of that. And the other thing, too, was that 
we had a lot of guys that were going to the NBA the next year. So I think our minds were on that a little bit as well. You know, and, and when you're not totally focused in this game, it can cost you. And it cost us that night. How do you look back at that loss now? I mean, it's one of the, uh, from, from a big picture standpoint, it's one of the best moments in, in college basketball over the course of the last 20 years. you got an 11 seed knocking off the number one overall seed to get to the tournament. It's a great moment. It's what makes college basketball special. And yeah. it also came at your expense. So how do you, do you, do you balance that? Are you disappointed by it with the, with the benefit of time? Like, what do you, how do you, how do you look back at it? It, it is it is still one of the more disappointing losses of my career. Um, you know, I've, I've had some pretty heartbreaking losses. I actually just had one in Mexico that was um, actually, actually two in Mexico that were extremely heartbreaking. Um, that one, that one is just more, it's more a what if thing. You know, what if we would have won that game? Would we have won a national, another national championship? And there's a good possibility that we could have just because of the immense amount of talent that we had on that team. Um, am I, am I upset about it? No, nah, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say that I'm upset. You know, you, you lose games all the time. Like I've lost hundreds of games over my career. Um, but it is disappointing in a sense of what could have possibly been if we had won that game, if we had really sat down and focused and said, you know, we need to beat this team and then we can worry about everything else. That is, that is where the disappointment lies for me. Right. All right. So I'll get you out of here, but I got three quick hitters uh, before we uh, call this one a wrap. Um, first and foremost, I need your wildest story from playing overseas. Everybody I know that has played in Europe, that has played <laughs> uh, in the Middle East, that has played in South America, everybody has a crazy story from playing abroad. I need your best one. I have too many stories from playing abroad, quite honestly. Um, I mean, we've, I, I know in China, we had our we had our bus surrounded by fans and they they wouldn't let us leave for about an hour they were banging on the windows a couple of them actually came on the bus um because we had a fight breakout during the game and they were waiting for us when we came out i had that happen was you that know, was we, the other team's fans yeah that was the other team's fans yeah they surround they surrounded the bus and the police just kind of looked at us and didn't do anything <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. That was, that was an interesting one. I mean, I've, I've had all, all sorts of crazy things happen to me, man. You know, when you, when you play in a lot of these countries, it, it just becomes par for the course at that point, you know, right. It's just normal. <laughs> <laughs> so different cultures and different countries are going to have different culinary tendencies. So I also want to know what was the craziest meal that you've had during your travels? When I was in China, I did not eat this, but the, they used to take us out for dinner a lot of times. Like if we would, if we would win, our GM almost always took us out to dinner and they would always take us out to what's called hot pot, which is basically um, you all sit around this big circular table. There's a, a big um, thing of boiling water in the middle and they give you all different types of food. You throw it in yourself and you basically cook it yourself and eat it. And there was this one thing that I know this, my translator always used to get anytime we went out, he would get like, you know, multiple of it. So one day I finally asked him, like, dude, what are you eating? And he just started laughing. And he's like, cow penis. <laughs> yeah. So that was apparently his favorite meal. He's like, yeah, make you big and strong. I'm like, nah, bro, I'm, I'm good on that. You, <laughs> you can have all the cow penis you want. I'm not touching that. So that, that would, that would probably that be. One. Yeah, that would be. <laughs> I, I saw some, some very weird things get eaten 
in China. There, I mean, there's a there's a city over there that is known for their bugs as well. Like literally to to eat their bugs, it's called like Bug City or something like that. I forget exactly where it is, but I know I had been there once, and I think my um my girlfriend at the time she had been there in addition. <laughs> so bugs and cow penis, that's what you get uh, mm-hmm. play basketball in China. All right, last one I got for you. I yeah. need your uh, best Calhoun story when uh, when um, Talik Brown I, I had him on a couple of weeks ago and he told <clears> me, uh, he remembers a time when Calhoun basically challenged everyone to go fight in a in a closet at practice uh, <laughs> before you got there. But you need your best Jim Calhoun story. Everybody that played at UConn is going to have a good one. Man, again, I've got I've got so many of those. Man, um, I mean, it, it's kind of funny because I don't think there's a single person that played for him throughout the course of the three years that I was there that didn't get thrown out of practice at least once. I got thrown out of a couple of practices. I actually got thrown out of a practice just because I was injured because I, I sprained my ankle and then we were running suicides and I literally had to like dive. Like I, I refused to give up. So I like dove across the line um, to try and make the time. And I guess that wasn't good enough for him. So he basically told me to get the hell out of his gym. Um, but uh, <laughs> the funnier one was actually he threw one of our walk-ons out of practice one day. Um, a guy by the name of, of Marty, we called him bar fight. Cause he came to practice one day with a black eye. So he was bar fight from then on. Um, but he actually, he threw bar fight out of the practice and bar fight was like so frazzled that he like started sprinting off, but he sprinted over to the door that was locked and everybody knew that door was locked, but he like sprinted to that door at the far end and then realized it was locked and had to sprint all the way across the court again <laughs> to the opposite door. So that was hilarious. But the story that still sticks out in my mind about coach would be um, we were playing Miami at home my freshman year. And for some reason, coach was crazier than usual. And I remember there was a time where he took he took Ben out of the game and Ben went over and sat on the bench and they started arguing. And at one point, coach looked at the security that was standing behind the bench and told security to escort Ben Gordon out of the arena. <laughs> and then less than a minute later, came back down and said, Ben, go get, him, go get him again, and put Ben right back in. So he went from trying to actually get him escorted out to putting him right back in the game within a span of maybe two minutes. Yeah, that sounds about right, man. <laughs> that yeah. sounds about right. Um, well, listen, Josh, this has been great, man. This has been a lot of fun. I appreciate you joining me on here. I'm going to hit you up again, try to get you back on at some point. So yeah, absolutely. More than more than one more of those Calhoun stories. So uh, thanks for being on, man. I appreciate it. Yep. No problem.